You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people, mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 304. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Hello, hello! How are you guys? Not bad, thank you. Yourselves? Yeah, finally a new week. Good, good, excited. A new week, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always good to have a new week. Yeah. Yeah, it's one more than one week to go before Christmas. Ah, right, that's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. I wonder <laughs> how many of our listeners do care about that fact. I do, I do, if don't. If they you don't, do. I do. You do? Yeah, it's a yeah. lovely time of the year. I think a lot, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily believe in the whole Jesus thing, but celebrate Christmas. Like I, I have several friends that are Muslims and and celebrate Christmas. Like it's not really connected that much anymore. Yeah, as long as it's a cause for celebration, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes. you you can celebrate Christmas even if you're not a believer. Ask our exactly. friend uh, George Schwab. He has a whole uh, song about that. Maybe we'll play it. Yeah, or Tim Minchin too. Mm, That's right. Yeah, Tim Minchin as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's next week. And now Mm -hmm. we're in this week. But last week, there was uh, (laughs) the last UK Skeptics in the Pub Online event for the year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Mm. Michael Michael Marshall, uh, Marsh, good friend of us and of the UK Skeptics, director of the Good Thinking Society, he held a talk. But he also announced this year's Occam's Awards. Mm-hmm. which is given out by the UK magazine called The Skeptic. Marsh is the editor of that mm-hmm. since a year back or so. And nowadays, they've changed the categories a bit. It's a very prestigious award, and not just because we actually got one back in 2018. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's uh, sitting on the shelf here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but now, so they've changed it around a little bit. So now there's one positive prize for skeptical activism, and there's one negative prize called the Rusty Racer. And uh, this year's Occam's Award for skeptical activism goes to Dutch microbiologist and scientific integrity consultant, Dr. Elizabeth Bick. Mm. Yeah, uh, she gets congratulations. The, yeah, very, very mm-hmm. much so. She well deserved too. <laughs> she gets the award for her work with identifying problems with the published research, the scientific research, where you're finding manipulated pictures and other problems because there, believe it or not, there are frauds and mistakes and and things that find their way into this. In science, you mean? No, it is no way. true. There are none. <laughs> <laughs> it's always self-correcting though, and she's a big part of it. She's also teaching others her techniques so so they can do the same thing. So that's uh, she's keeping mm. science straight if you will. That's very well deserved. She, she she's basically a professional party pooper for science scientists re- uh, scientific researchers. Right, but we you know we don't want fun <laughs> results. We want the true results, the one that are correct. Exactement. Yeah. Mm. And then there was the the Rusty Racer award which is the negative prize. I mean in Australia uh-huh. they would call it the the Bent Spoon award and there are similar mm. prizes in other countries. But this is uh, for pseudoscience and it went to former Pfizer research scientist who has turned anti-vax Dr. Mike Yeadon for his relentless promotion of COVID-19 and anti-vax misinformation. And he uses his background, of course, at Pfizer to, to lend credibility to his misinformation 
he does a lot of harm. So uh, that's also very well deserved. Yeah. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we will put the link in the show notes for those who want to li- read the the UK Skeptic magazine and, and the more details about the, these awards. But uh, they are important awards, and I I fully support this year's awards or n- not nominations. What do you call it? Recipients or the re- I don't support <laughs> the recipients. Now it's getting complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I support okay. one recipient, but not the other one. But I, I want to say that I do approve of the, of the award as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. for good reason. Something I approved of was that our new prime minister Olaf Scholz decided to not include God in his like oath taking <laughs> for Ooh. to to take his position. Yeah. And very often politicians include like so God help me. <laughs> yeah, the, so help me God. Yeah. So, so is God, it like yeah. officially part yeah. of the the inauguration ceremony or yeah, what? like it's, it's not it's not super official like they they give you a choice. You can also okay. say like you want to you want to swear on the bible or not. But they do give you a choice but most people do <laughs> still do it with with God and um, so va mir Gott helfe, like so, like so, God help me, and he didn't, and it was that mm, was good. interesting enough. You can see like that it was interesting enough because people reported on it. <laughs> yeah, it made the news. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Would you would you consider it a, a brave move politically speaking in Germany? Is it a big thing not to be religious as a leader? Mm, it's not. I would say like because he's not the leader of the um, Christian party. The CDU. Yeah, like Angela Merkel mm-hmm. was, yeah. Like, if Angela Merkel would have done that, it would have been a very bold move. That, that would have been strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could have been expelled for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's still, like, it, it's, it is a big thing, but it's I think it's more a signal mm-hmm. than yeah. a, oh, my God, a, a literally, like, everyone will, will hate him now. Like, I don't think it's that. It, okay. It's more a signal, yeah, right. I think. But I think it's not the first time, right? He he has yeah. done similar things in mm-hmm. the past. So yeah, good exactly. on him. Uh, you couldn't you imagine that happening in the US? No, no, <laughs> no, no. So clear no, no, no. And, and short answer: no. <laughs> Correct. But th- this is a kind of a signal that we, we do like and appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of signals, <laughs> there is some kind of European activity that is um, very cool out in space and especially around Mars. You probably all know that uh, there was a rover put on Mars by the Chinese yeah, space agency. Yeah, was the rabbit or what was it called? Uh, wasn't it the rabbit? Wasn't that uh, put on on the moon? I think. Oh, it sorry. Was. Yes, that's never probably, mind. That's correct. That's the moon. Sorry, Zurong. Zurong is 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 the name of the the I, Martian no, rover. No, not Zurong. I'm wrong. So okay. <laughs> 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 all right then. So, and the the way it was designed is that, obviously, since there are no large antenna arrays on a, a rover, usually they don't put them on the rovers. It's usually done through an, an orbiting satellite that they, they put around Mars, and uh, that orbiting satellite transmits the data, relays it from the rover to the space agency's Earth receivers. Yeah, they have a Wi-Fi router. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Basically, that's the that's the thing. So it's it's named Tianwen One, and it's it's in orbit around Mars. But since the rover has way outlived its original planned project, the design of Tianwen One was such that it has its own scientific experiments to do. Mm-hmm. 
So you cannot just stick around to be the one that relays the, the tra- and transmits the data towards Earth. So that was a little bit of a problem because Zhurong kept collecting the data, <laughs> but he could not <laughs> find a way to send it off. Because the Wi-Fi router was on its way somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was looking the other direction uh, most okay. of the way. Looking in the, uh, yeah. So there comes the European Space Agency to the rescue. They decided to try to make the two crafts work together. The only problem is that they didn't have a, a correct way of two-way communication. No possible two-way communication because they transmit in two different frequencies. That's why I am started out ah, by signals. referring back to the signal. Mm-hmm. So the ASAR Mars Express orbiter has no way of getting information back to the rover. So it cannot say to the rover, okay, come on, now you can send, send the data off. Mm-hmm. But the Tianwen-1, so the original orbiter of the Chinese space agency, can still do that. Just nudge the rover and say that, okay, now you send off the data. And <laughs> then it's it starts transmitting in the blind. Whoever's listening, aliens. this is what I'm transmitting. Yeah. yeah, aliens, this is what I'm transmitting. Whoever's listening, just pick it up and run with it. And that's what Mars Express does. And there have been a couple of experimental trials of this method. And it seems to be working now. So the the first batch of data back in November were corrupted. They could not work with it. But now, towards the end of November and the beginning of uh, December, it has been reported that it works. The system works. So now the European Space Agency is helping out the Chinese Space Agency in sending the data back from the, the, the Chinese yeah. rover from Mars. This is absolutely amazing. And I, I just... Can't tell you how much I love these international collaborations and how much, no matter what the political situation is, these scientist guys, these people working in the name of science, what matters to them is that the data gets back. And if it means that it's an international collaboration, then yeah, that's right. (laughs) Let it be. That's right. And I'm amazing. I bet you the first message that it sent back home was it's very cold and lonely here. (laughs) <laughs> it must have been it must have been the message. Yeah. It's a cute little thing by the way. It has it has two cameras that look like little teeny tiny eyes on it. <laughs> so it really looks they should really have put cool. goggly eyes on it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a little bit of a reminiscence to Wally. <laughs> At least to me Wally. for some reason. Never mind. All right. <laughs> so, I just found it cool and well done European Space Agency. Very well done. So one more thing, I promise we will soon get into the actual uh, episode here, but uh, there's one more thing we have to do a follow-up because in October last year on episode 243, we talked to Patrick Vermeeren, one of the Belgian Mm -hmm. skeptics of the Belgian skeptic organization SKEP. And Patrick and his colleague Bart van de Ven were sued by a multimillionaire called Carl van der Velde for uh, defamation. 400,000 euros he wanted. And uh, Carl van der Velde drives a so-called uh, training institute that sells courses to companies about how to motivate your employees and a positive mindset and, and things like that. And you can go back to the actual episode and to hear more about it when Patrick is explaining it all. But the thing is that he and Bart criticized that company for promoting pseudoscience because a lot of those things that they are selling just doesn't work. And we know that they don't work. Anyway, 
We talked in that episode about an appeals court that was going to come back with a final verdict, and they did. And they rejected the case. So that's good news. There is no talk about defamation here. This multimillionaire is just trying to sue critics to gain a point, or to scare people, really. So now, yeah. now the training institute instead has to pay 8,400 euros to the Belgian skeptics because they put up with, with the cost. So that's good, but actually it's not enough. It's far from enough to cover the actual costs, which were over 67,000 euros. But fortunately, partly due to a fundraiser, Skep will be able to cover uh, all of the costs. So, uh, mm. so that's a good outcome from a bullshit legal case. Yes. Yeah, but it, mm-hmm. and why it's important is that it's an example. It's a good precedent that it can be won. Mm. It's not the first of the kind. We have seen skeptics even in Europe, like uh, see the example of uh, Simon Singh, yeah, Brit Marie Hermes, yes. Brit Marie Hermes. But they are long, painful, and very costly. Yeah. These lawsuits. But we should not allow people to scare others and uh, try to silence them by slap lawsuits. Mm. lawsuits. It should not be happening. All right. That's um, that's all about housekeeping, I think. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the show that we have prepared for our listeners. To start with, here's This Week in Skeptical History, or Twish. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the date that we are celebrating is the 16th of December. Not celebrating, really, uh, just commemorating. This is the 16th of <laughs> December, 1594. And why I corrected myself is because it's a commemoration of the death of someone who went by the name Alison Balfour. Scottish listeners might not be very comfortable with my pronunciation of the name, but uh, I will not stop at mispronouncing that name because I will have a couple of other names of places <laughs> and people mentioning through this story Good for you. that I might butcher. Never mind. So, Alison Balfour was an alleged witch. Ooh. Ooh. And Burn that her. was. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Oh. Uh. Ouch. Sorry. I keep doing that. I listened back to the episode and I, I talked about something very tragical and I ended up laughing. So, sorry, that doesn't mean that I don't care or it doesn't mean that I have no compassion whatsoever. So, they did. They did burn her after strangling her. It's a very frequently mentioned witchcraft case in Scottish history. But I have to tell you that Scottish history is full of witchcraft cases. Thousands of witches have been sentenced to death in a matter of a couple of hundred years in Scotland. This one uh, happened up north in the Orkney Islands. There is um, the, the area of uh, Stennis and another place that is named Kirkwall. Orkney was run by the second Earl of Orkney, Patrick Stewart. Very cool name. Just because of (laughs) Captain Picard, of course. He controlled Orkney in 1594, when apparently his brother started plotting against him. He wanted to kill him. The brother's name was John Stewart. Patrick Stewart discovered that uh, there was an attempted poisoning of his by a servant who went by the name Thomas Papley. Another name that I might be mispronouncing. Never mind. (laughs) Papley did not admit his guilt. 
And as a result, he got into the torturing chambers and that did the trick. So at the end, he did not only confess, but also implicated a couple of co-conspirators, among which there was this woman, Alison Balfour. Some sources refer to her as Margaret Balfour. Mm-hmm. And she was known as a healer, a local healer of some, some sort. So obviously she knew how to concoct a couple of stuff that might be able to heal you. And uh, obviously it wasn't out of the question that this person might be able to come up with a poison as well. Balfour was taken into custody. She was tried. And she never confessed because she was not guilty. But that didn't stop the others to to try and get a confession out of her. She went through terrible ways of torturing, but not only her, but her very old husband as well. We will link to an article where they go into details as to how the torturing was going on, but I'm not going to mention all those. Yeah. Uh, they're <laughs> terrible, t- t- terrible. Her very old husband of 80-something years of age was tortured. This didn't break a ball for. Her son was tortured. This didn't break her either. Oh, but when geez. the very young daughter of hers got into the torturing chambers... That did the trick. So that actually made her confess, and as a result, she was condemned to death. However, just the day before she was actually executed, she said to the public that she was actually not guilty, and she went into detail as to how the torturing went on. And uh, this is important because at the end, when John Stewart was tried, there was a trial with the alleged plotting against his brother. They didn't use the confession of Alison Balfour because it was taken through torturing. Mm. It was uh, deemed absolutely legal. But this, unfortunately, didn't mean that Alison Balfour could avoid her fate of uh, getting strangled and burned at the stake for witchcraft. So this is a very famous case. And it happened on the 16th of December, 1594. I have to mention as well that this was like 30 years after a Scottish Witchcraft Act of 1563. So we're talking about a time of Elizabeth I as Queen of England and indeed Scotland. The Scottish Witchcraft Act was much more severe and strict than the English. Basically, a lot of people were executed based on the Scottish Witchcraft Act. The same could not be told about the the English counterpart of it, because the English counterpart specifically stated that in order for someone to get the death penalty, had to have caused very, very serious injury or harm to the other people. So just because someone told others about you that you're a witch, that was not enough. You had to have been seriously harmed. Mm. This made a huge difference, but this was not a criterion for the Scottish part. Hmm. Have you ever been to Edinburgh? Yes. No, I haven't. A couple of years after the death of uh, Alison Balfour in 1597, there was something that was called the Great Scottish Witch Hunt. We're talking about hundreds of people who were sentenced to death. And there are a couple of places in Edinburgh where there are commemorative plagues. For example, there's a well, the Witch's Well, not far from the Royal Mile. When you start going down the Royal Mile, there it is. And uh, there used to be a lake as well. When they drained the lake, they found many, many bodies. And 
the local legend has it that most of the the people who whose remains were sitting there were the bodies of the alleged witches who were tried through a method that's called ducking. So they were put in the water with uh, heavy weights put on on their bodies, and if they still floated, they were ducking. Then that meant that they were witches, and if not, they drowned. That meant that, oh, sorry, you were not a witch, but you died anyway. So, well, I hope that the legal system has improved a little bit since then. <laughs> Probably. I, uh, I am very positive about that. Well, in Europe it did, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. There are still witch trials in other parts of the world. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the Scottish Witchcraft Act of 1563 was in place until 1735, almost 200 years. <laughs> Yeah, in the 18th century, still hunting witches. Nice. So absurd. <laughs> but it never it never was not absurd to begin with. No, it wasn't. So that was all for this week in Skeptical History. And that means we're moving on to finding out if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for. Actually, no. <laughs> no. No, no. Okay. <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll give him a rest this time. There's a few anecdotes I could tell, but they are not important enough. I think we'll save it for something little bit more juicy. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> that means that we are moving on to the juicy news. <laughs> <laughs> well, not that juicy, but I would like to start with something that uh, really hits home, literally. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that Time magazine named persons or heroes of the year 2021 couple of days ago. Was it Elon Musk? No, Elon Musk is the person of the year. Person of the year. But there is a separate category, heroes of the year. Okay. And the heroes of the year, four scientists in the forefront of uh, vaccine research, the mRNA vaccine research, have been named heroes of the year. Uh And three of them are, are American, which is not really the scope of this podcast. However, one of the four is a Hungarian researcher, By the name Katalin Koriko. Really? And she is one of the people, the researchers behind the mRNA vaccine technique. Wow. The technology itself. She's been working with mRNA basically all her career for 30 years. And she teamed up with these American scientists. And they are basically the ones responsible for the mRNA vaccines. Just the fact that the Time magazine named them Heroes of the Year for scientists, for something so cool as an mRNA vaccine, I find it absolutely amazing. This is a big win for science, and this is, for for a science communication point of view, I think it's something that we've been long waiting for, that such a great acclaim goes to the people that deserve it Mm. so much. And yet, now that uh, we've been sharing this on uh, Facebook and social media, oh my God, the the reactions that we get. (laughs) that Some people even go as far as to calling these researchers murderers Uh. and mass murderers and all that. And it's unbelievable how much of a gap there is between the people who understand what a scientific achievement this is and the people who have no idea, but they have an agenda. I'm sure it will come up again later in this episode. Might, might be. (laughs) (laughs) Might. (laughs) But the cool thing is that the mRNA vaccines are so cool because they don't stop at trying to fight COVID-19. 
They are now working on the flu jabs. So mRNA flu jabs and the initial studies show very good results. That's so, so cool. Yeah, but it's also a reminder. It's good that you said she's been working her whole career about with this. That's a reminder that it's not a new technique. It's now we're exactly. implementing exactly. it, but it's not like somebody thought of it in 2020 and said, let's do this. This has been in the pipeline for decades and now yeah. it's mature enough to be implemented and we can see that it works. It's great. Yeah, but imagine where it will go in the future. Like, yes. there might it's, be uh, yeah. even more. Like, maybe sometime in the future, we can have like an, an HIV vaccine or something, you know? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. who knows? Mm -hmm. yeah, right. It's so good. So, the technology is not new. And it's a very long article on Time magazine, but I do recommend everyone to read through it because. It's amazing. The stories behind it, how Kotalin Koriko says that she'd been working on the mRNA technology, how to deliver it to the cells, but not as a, at a potential vaccine, but something like an actual therapy, therapeutic use. Then when the pandemic hit, then someone came up with the idea that this could be used for a vaccination as well. And it seems to be working like a charm. It was also a story of the right timing that it was there, the right place, at the right time. Yeah. This doesn't really happen very often in science. Mm -hmm. So, well done, and thank you very much for these scientists, and uh, a special congratulations from my heart to Katalin Kariko, who happens to be Hungarian. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so cool. I, we will get back into COVID uh, later, but let's take a break from that. Uh, there is an artist from Sweden called Anna Hauswolf, That sounds very German, Annika. It Hauswolf. does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a home wolf. <laughs> home wolf. Okay. Yeah, yeah. House wolf. It's a dog. Yeah. Basically, it's a dog. Yeah. No, no. Let's not <laughs> make German, fun of her name. A German shepherd. <laughs> she is from Gothenburg, so she's not German. Okay. She doesn't have a religious angle to her music, but she often performs in churches because she likes the acoustics and because she likes the vibe of the church organ. She can make very intense, and I almost said noises, but I don't mean noises, but music with, with that. She is currently on a European tour. She, is, she was in France last week, but she was stopped from performing in a church in Nantes in, in France by fundamentalist Catholic fanatics who claim that she is a Satanist and in league with the devil. I actually didn't know of her before. She's not very famous, I don't think. I mean, she has hundreds of thousands of, of followers, of course, but uh, I didn't know of her. I checked her out now. Her music is very theatrical and dark. It's full of metaphors and she has a, a great voice, a very haunting voice. But she has this one song called Pills, where she has this one line that goes, Oh, I, I made love with the devil. And there you go. Yeah, but that's a figure oh. of speech. It is a figure of speech. It's metaphorical and it's a part of it. I, I believe it is about mental issues and or at least torment and, and anguish and things like that. I think she means that the pills kept her alive and they were and it's very dark and, 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 and it's very artistic. It's good. The part of making love with the devil has nothing to do with Satanism, of course. Anyway, there were so many hostile people outside the church that the concert had to be cancelled. So religious fanatics get totally nuts because of their belief systems, not hers. 
and it's really deplorable that it comes to that. Her gig in Paris, which was following, had to be moved to another church, a secret place, <laughs> because they didn't want this, the, a repeat of the same thing. So it was only announced to the people who actually had tickets so that that uh, concert could actually be carried through. So from the reporting, it seems like the Catholic Church in France is divided between sensible people who, who feels like I and say that this is nonsense. I mean, let, this is about music. This is not about... But there is a loud, I don't know how big they are, but it's a very loud minority that are totally off their rockers and uh, cannot... As soon as you say Satan, then they go ballistic. <laughs> yeah, but I think that seems to be the case with a lot of religious people. Like some are like, oh yeah, whatever. As long as you like leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And yeah. and others are yeah very very loud in their opinions. Hmm. I actually read something about opinions and how to have good conversations without being necessarily loud. <laughs> and. Okay. This is about COVID and COVID disinformation with friends and family and without destroying relationships, basically. And the article I read, it was written by Stephen Lewandowski and Philip Schmidt, who we both had on the show. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's really very cool. proud of that fact. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can recommend reading the article itself because it's, it's really well written. But of course, here's my cap of that. Because with COVID, we had, as they call it, the infodemic accompanying COVID. So we had misinformation before, but it reached a whole new level. The problem with misinformation is not like, yeah, well, then you just believe in wrong things. <laughs> it's actually that it can, for example, reduce your, your likelihood of taking vaccinations. And it also creates a big tension, sometimes divides even families or is hard on friendships because it doesn't only come with wrong information. It also usually comes with conspiracy theories, being unvaccinated and so on. Germany right now is in the fourth wave, as we call it. So like the fourth big spike. Mm. So Germany has new processes, new tries to tackle the COVID denial and COVID misinformation. So they have um, centers now, a few centers where you can go to and they offer you free confidential counseling. Um, they also offer phone counseling and Mm. Um, one in Baden-Württemberg had more than 300 requests already for advice and information. These centers also exist in Berlin and Northern Westphalia. My thought about that is was like, I love that. I really love that. But I thought maybe it's a bit of preaching to the choir. Because if you call there for information, yes. If you call there for advice, it's probably not for you. Because you are already concerned about a friend or family. If you like, you, you get my point? Yes, but I think you're referring to a marginal part of the the population of people. True. Yeah. It's it's not a huge chunk of the population who actually think that this is bogus and this is just not real. Mm -hmm. But many of those people who are actually worried and who are concerned do not know what to think and do not know yeah. what to believe and who whom to trust. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important yeah, it is like a, service. A, it is definitely super important. And I also love that it's it's there, that it's free, that it's confidential. I love all of that. Yeah. <laughs> You might also think, like, why Why is that so important? Um, like, why can't we just all be friends and vaccinated, unvaccinated? Um, <laughs> it's because, that the, because the belief in conspiracy theories often leads to a rejection of the preventive measures like social distancing, like vaccines. 
And that means there will be more cases and also people who can't get vaccinated, like my baby, for example, can't get vaccinated yet. They are at a much higher risk if, if people around her are not following the measures and not getting mm. vaccinated. And, and that's why it's not only their own misinformation and their own thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But what Stephen Lewandowski and Philip Schmidt talked about is a process called motivational interviewing. And there you don't bombard people with facts, but you actually ask them like, hey, can you tell me about your opinion about vaccination? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read that too on Facebook. That's really concerning. Yeah, yeah. And do you want to know more about that? I read something else about that. And then you just like, you're very empathic and then you give them facts, but, but do it like mm -hmm. very slowly and with a lot of empathy. These centers also give out leaflets. And there's also, of course, still the handbook by Lewandowski and Schmidt. To, to put that all in a nutshell, empathy plus critical thinking, less mocking and more like really empathy will, will get us further. Yeah, it's, it's important to not increase the damage that already is in the relationships around, around us, I would guess. So like empathy is important, but also like, of course, don't forget the critical thinking. Yeah, uh, one thing is for sure, an all-out assault on people's ideas and people's fears is never gonna work. Yeah. The only result you can get out of that is alienating them. Exactly. They will just dig their heels in and then you've lost, basically. But they're doing very good yeah. work. Uh, Lewandowski, Philip Schmidt, the others, oh, yeah. John Cook. Because we, we really need to keep the conversation going. You can't just ignore or shout at uh, the other people. <laughs> the other yeah. people meaning those who do not listen to science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. All right. So just a short mention about this, because we've talked about it before. Uh, this is about a heat wave in Siberia last summer. So the WMO, the World Meteor Meteorological Organization... <laughs> It's hard to say, but they have now officially confirmed the record registration of 38 degrees Celsius in June as the highest ever temperature registered above the Arctic Circle. That temperature was 18 degrees Celsius higher than the area's average daily maximum for June. So it, it was really, really crazy. Just again, confirmation. If anybody still do not believe in, in climate change, here we are. They said <laughs> further that the temperature was measured at the meteorological station during, quote, an exceptional and prolonged Siberian heat wave, end quote. And last year's extreme heat in the region contributed to the spread of wildfires. They swept across the forests and uh, the peatlands of nor northern Russia, releasing record amounts of carbon. And they went on to say that the high temperatures across Siberia has led to, quote, massive sea ice loss, end quote, and played a major role in 2020 being one of the three warmest years ever. So, And a further opening up of the permafrost and yeah, yeah. releasing all a of, that. Of, a, of a lot of methane, mm. uh, which is an even stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. But you know, uh, in Europe, what seems to have been the highest temperature and that the record was basically broken this year. Mm -hmm. It was down in Sicily, 48.8 degrees Jesus, fuck. in uh, uh, Syracuse. Mm. Syracuse, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the southeastern part of uh, Sicily. But the World Meteorological Organization has not confirmed it yet. So it looks like those guys are not very, very fast in uh, quick in, okay. in confirming things. That's but <laughs> yeah, they're thorough. So the reason why it hasn't not been confirmed yet is because they have to evaluate the, the equipment that the measurement was made with. Sure. So if it turns out that the measurement was correct and it gets confirmed, that was the highest ever temperature recorded in Europe. Hmm. So far, the highest was, I, I believe it was in Athens, sometime around the 1970s, 1977, I believe, and it was 48 degrees. Mm. But this is 48.8, and that was a massive heat wave all across southern Italy and indeed Sicily. That was an emergency situation as well. There were wildfires. So this is happening, people. Yeah. This is absolutely it is. It happening. Is. It's not the future. It's we are, We're in it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, now that we mentioned Sicily, I'd like to mention yet another guy in <laughs> Sicily who who did something very silly. In Noto, which is very close to Siracusa, by the way, it's a beautiful, gorgeous little little town. The whole town center is built in the Baroque style. Beautiful, gorgeous. Never mind. But there was a massive celebration on San Nicolas's Day, the 6th of December. And uh, the local bishop tried to be motivational and tried to be very uh, Catholic about Christmas and about the very important role and message of St. Nicholas, who gave everything, uh, his whole wealth, to the poor and the, the children, the poor children, and then he gave his life as well. He did it in a very weird and silly way, basically saying that St. Nicholas was not real. So, I mean, St. Nicholas was real, but basically saying that Santa Claus is not real and children should not believe in him, which really didn't sound very good. Every religious festivity has a big importance in Sicily, and especially in southern uh, Italy and Sicily. So, St. Nicholas's Day, Christmas, there is one that's called Befana at the beginning of January. And those are very important for children. That helps them build up their belief. So a lot of parents are not pissed off at the bishop. So (laughs) the communications (laughs) office of the bishop had to correct it, had to go out and say that... Santa is real. This is not what the bishop meant. St. Nicholas's (laughs) role and and very important position was what he tried to emphasize and all that. But uh, (laughs) one parent allegedly said that... uh, this is a clear indication that the bishop had has no clue of how a family operates and, and, and what family values are. Because for children, believing in Santa is something so important that taking it away with like just an offhand comment like that is absolutely silly. And uh, so, so why is it that we should never let any bishop close to any children? They are just... <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seems to be the case. Mm. Yeah. So from one Grinch, uh, I want to talk <laughs> about something that's also green and has to do with Christmas. Mm. <laughs> do you guys already have a Christmas tree? No, not yet. Nah. Nah. Are you Christmas tree people on? Or are you getting one or no? Yeah, we will. I, I think next uh, this weekend, coming weekend. Mm. And Andres? Yeah, of course. Mm. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see from that, like, it is important for people to have Christmas trees. 
but it also has a big environmental impact. How much carbon is used depends on the type of tree. There are plastic trees, but they are 10 to 20 times worse in the regards of their carbon footprint because they use fossil fuels and the machines that manufacture the plastic tree also require energy. You can, of course, use real trees. They take carbon out of the atmosphere to grow, so in that regard, they're good. But with chemical fertilizers and the machines to cut them and to transport them, they already have a big carbon footprint then too. So you can, for example, reuse a plastic tree for a decade or more. Otherwise, a real tree is better if you don't want to reuse your plastic tree for 15 years or more. But then it's also still important which kind of tree you get or where you get it. So it's good if it's, for example, locally grown, not out of a monoculture because there the pesticides are bigger um, and have a bigger impact on the environment. If you have it outside of a monoculture, like in a, in a forest, for example, then they can be very uh, wonky, have this like real life wonky <laughs> shape. Artistic is the word. Artistic, yeah. <laughs> Artistic, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, it's important, like, where is it growing? Is it taking up valuable farmland? Is it in low productive soil? And we also have to keep in mind that this is not like for one tree. This is for millions of trees that are cut on every year. And that's also not may not good in regards to land allocation. They are cut down every six to ten years. So like the, they need about six to ten years to get as big as the normal Christmas trees are. This is not sustainable, of course. Like if you go through a field of Christmas trees every six to ten years, cut everything down, then build it all up again, it's it's not the nicest thing to do for the ecoculture in there. Mm -hmm. And the kind of tree also matters, but sadly, there's not really a study if like the Nordman fir is a bit better than <laughs> the pine, for example. Is of course also related to the location and the soil, like where is it coming from? Does it grow locally and so on? And is it maybe is it maybe not even like growing normally there? So is it giving some kind of bug more food than another that will then lead to a whole different problem? Mm -hmm. You can also think about like what happens after Christmas. With a plastic tree, of course, yeah, you pack it up, you put it in the cellar, that's it. But what do you do with the real tree? You can use the tree as compost, and that's better mm -hmm. than burning it because burning just releases yeah, the carbon back to the atmosphere. Yeah, but the worst thing you can actually do is putting it on a landfill because then it slow releases the carbon for the next decade. So compost is the best, then burning, then the landfill. What you can also do, and there are... But it's still better than burning the plastic tree. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> <Not> true. <laughs> That's true, yes. And also, uh, it smells a bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't burn the plastic trees, Don't people. burn the plastic don't burn tree, please. No, yeah. don't, don't do it. There are also already a few tries to keep a Christmas tree alive and then repot it afterwards or mm -hmm. rent a Christmas tree. So have a pot-grown tree that you can then um, put into a bigger pot after Christmas or even put it, like plant it afterwards. So put it to, to put it in a nutshell, if you want to reuse a plastic tree for decades, then using a plastic tree is nice for the environment. And of course, we all want to do something for the environment because we just heard about 
38 degrees in the Arctic. <laughs> mm. You can buy a locally grown tree without a plastic net, like without the plastic net wrapped around it. You can look at recycling options, um, what to do with the tree afterwards. You can get pot grown trees. And you can also, if the Christmas tree is not the most important thing to you, you can also get timber made alternatives. I saw some of mm -hmm. that. They like, for example, are like big rings that you can just put decoration on. So like, if you like that, if you don't need the green shape, <laughs> then you can also do that. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I found that really interesting. So yeah, that was my take on Christmas trees. <laughs> Or not more like <laughs> my take on the summary of Christmas trees. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, guys, what what I'm really looking forward to is having like a holographic Christmas trees, <laughs> and you can program it, and you don't have to worry about what it what it's going to look like. But that would require a lot of energy. So, yeah, that's but you can have augmented thing. reality, right? So you all go around with glasses, and you see Ooh. the tree there, even if it's not there. That's cool. I'll patent that idea for next Christmas. <laughs> yeah, too bad you you just announced it out. I'm editing. Out I can cut air. it out. <laughs> Are you anything you can? Yeah, yeah, okay. All right. So, thank you very much, guys. Uh, moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. Right then, and we go to Germany, the Corona Committee or the Corona Ausschuss was founded in Berlin in July. Anschluss. Ausschuss. Ausschuss. <laughs> Corona Ausschuss. Not that Nazi term. Nope. <laughs> not Anschluss. <laughs> okay, nope. okay. That's right. All German words are not Nazi words. The Corona Ausschuss was founded in Berlin in July last year, and the stated goal was to provide a, quote, factual analysis, end quote, of the coronavirus events and the consequences of the and the measures, you know, all of that stuff. So in live sessions lasting several hours, this committee hears experts from all COVID-affected fields. This group was founded by the lawyers Vivian Fischer, Antonia Fischer, Dr. Reiner Füllmich, and Dr. Justus Hoffmann. And if you don't know those names, good for you. To give you a taste <laughs> of who they are, let's say uh, Rainer Fullmilch, he predicted that the vaccine against Corona would kill 25% of all Germans directly and cause potential fatal side effects in another 36% of the... That's, that's very specific. It was 25%. That's a fourth. But then he, <laughs> he says 36% will have uh, side effects, fatal side effects. And he also said that the German government was planning on, quote, organized mass killing, end quote. He hasn't taken this back. This is what he said in February, in February 2020, that is. This Corona Ausschuss warns that the unvaccinated could soon be picked up and put into concentration camps. Loving parents might soon have to hide their children under the boards of the floor at home to prevent them from being sprayed to death. They claim that the Israeli government is currently carrying out a holocaust on its own population. Quote from the discussion, quote, You can see that by how many people are dying from the vaccinations, end quote. One guest, interestingly, declared that there are, quote, something like living octopuses, end quote, in the corona vaccine. Oh, <laughs> so many. Living octopuses <laughs> in the vaccine. That is, mm. I hear a lot of bullshit. That, that one was new. I haven't heard that before. 
You know what might have happened? They saw a picture of the coronavirus in electron microscope capture or something, and they saw it moving and they saw it. I I don't know. So this is how the idea could have come about. You give them much too much credit. I don't think they know one end of a microscope to another. So I don't think that's the case. But uh, okay, that's okay. my hypothesis anyway. <laughs> But the comment about Israel is uh, interesting, and it's uh, quote-unquote well-received in some dark places. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes you can judge an organization by the supporters it has. So one vocal advocate for the Corona Committee is Speerspitze. That already sounds very bad. Yeah, Spearhead. It's an organization of conspiracy theorists, neo-Nazis, sympathizers, New World Order, mongers, and that kind of stuff. And if that is the people who supports you, perhaps you should re-evaluate your position. <laughs> the Corona Committee said that they formed because they wanted to create a forum for free debate that allows, quote-unquote, all sides to be heard. Funnily enough... Nowhere on their online discussions uh, are there any actual science experts from the rational side. So it's not all sides. It's just their side. So anyway, for all the obvious reasons, the Corona Ausschuss gets today's prize for being really wrong. Super well deserved. <laughs> yeah, and also for, oh. also for being dangerously harmful to society and to anyone who perhaps do not That's have correct. the scientific background to see through their bullshit. Yes. But their YouTube live transmissions are often like five or six hours long. They're just sitting there spitting their ah, terrible things. It makes me think of of, um, a site. Do you know uh, Vaccine Impact? It's a site that I follow. You can actually see the transformation from massively critical but simply wrong Mm -hmm. website into this batshit crazy holocaust-mongering place where people do actually claim the same things. Like, this is a mass murder, this is killing of people with the vaccine, and there are talk of concentration camps as well there. This is dangerous stuff. So the transformation from something critical to absolutely batshit crazy Mm -hmm. and Mm. still gaining more and more followers by the day... That is scary. Yeah, that is not really, even not not mm. only concerning. That's scary. Yeah. That scares the shit out of me. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the link to Nazi sympathizers as well. Yeah. Accusing Israel for performing a Holocaust. That is. <laughs> I mean, where do you start? That's so. Yeah. It's not even wrong. Yeah. 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 yeah <laughs> exactly. Not not that the Israeli government hasn't ever done anything wrong. They have. Yeah. But uh, this is dog whistling to the Nazi sympathizers. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. so absurd. It's like I almost would almost call it perfidious if you can use that word. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for that, Pontus. Mm-hmm. And that basically concludes the show. However, we need a quote to finish on. And the quote is by Tycho Brahe, or in German he's mm. pronounced Tycho Brahe. I don't know how is he pronounced in Danish. It's um, probably closer to the original Danish. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tycho Brahe. In Sweden we call him Tycho Brahe. Tycho Brahe. Uh, mm. Yeah, Tycho that's probably Brahe. very okay. close to, mm. the, yeah. to what he's called. 
and he was a Danish astronomer. And he was born today on the 14th of December 1546 and he died on the 24th of October 1601. And the quote goes, So, mathematical truth prefers simple words since the language of truth is itself simple. Short and sweet. <laughs> Reminded okay, me a bit of yeah. the Occam's uh, principle, the Occam's razor. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 it's a little bit of that. Yeah, it's good with the Occam Awards at the beginning of the show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and the Occam's razor in the end. So hmm? there you go. Do you know where he was a court astronomer? Uh, Frederick, Frederick, wasn't it? With Frederick. Uh, Rudolf. Rudolf. Okay. I think it was Rudolf's court in Prague. So not the red-nosed rain there then. No, no, I'm talking to... Yeah, speaking of nose, he lost his nose, by the way. Then, yeah, not in a duel. Duel. <laughs> but, but the Tycho Brahe did, yes, he did. Yeah. And his successor as a royal astronomer was Johannes Kepler. That is true. That's so cool. And Kepler used a lot of uh, Tycho Brahe's observations as a basis. Yeah, because Kepler was not that good in observations, but Tycho Brahe was, was crap, very, very laborious. Good material to analyze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And came up with that really cool shit of uh, the, the movement of planets. So, yeah. Standing on the shoulders of giants. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And on that note, we have to put an end to this episode. Thank you very much, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Wislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. This is about... What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly, that's about... It's about Andrash <laughs> talking very quietly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me, are you sure it's the WHO? It's the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization. Oh yeah, that, you also have written well, WMO in the... What in the, the hell? I, I did. I, I changed that. Oh, because okay. it's the WMO, I, I, okay. it's the World I, Meteorological I, I, Organization. I, it read, be the, I read the WHO, <laughs> but that yeah. makes more sense, of course, the WMO. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hello. Okay, good. All <laughs> right, let's do it again then. Born today on the 14th of December, 1546. <laughs> Can you please tell Scotty to be quiet? No, no, no. You didn't be no. slut. <laughs> do it, do it now.
Or did you close the recording as well? You know, you don't have to say it every week. Just send me that recording and I'll cut it in every week. <laughs> or Pontus, we just say it. <laughs> no, no, it's ha- it has to be me. Vislat. <laughs>